Come on back. Come on back. We got a long way to go, and Kara has challenged me. Folks, Kara has challenged me. She says we can't get through chapter six, and I told her there's absolutely positively no problem. So we're going to go for it, and um, then we're going to fellowship around the chairs as we move them on, uh, <laughs> as we move them. Uh, why am I so excited uh, about uh, Ezra? Well, Ezra is the guts of the Bible. <laughs> it's like amazing jumping off point for a lot of different things. And remember, I handed out a piece of paper. I had my chicken scratch on chapter or on the second page of this, this uh, pamphlet, right? That all of you, I'm sure, brought. And um, I added some numbers to it. But here's the most important number of the Old Testament. You ready for it? Just write it down. Just write it in Ezra. The most important, yeah, good, good job, is 586 B.C. You need to know 586 B.C. It's, if you don't know that date, you really can't untangle the Old Testament. And see, I don't, see in my second bullet point or where it says prophecy fulfilled and it says three waves. Three waves, what are we talking about? We're talking about when the Babylonians came and pulled out the uh, Israelites uh, from Judah. Now, Judah, there's two separate uh, areas. There's a divided kingdom. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was already taken away, 722 B.C. They're gone. And what remains is Judah and Benjamin, two tribes in the southern kingdom, and they start getting pulled out in 605 B.C. That's first wave. You can see it right there in my handout. 597 B.C. and 586 B.C. 586 B.C. is finally when the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar and his crew, came down and just ripped apart Jerusalem, just destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and everything. And the reason I'm telling you that is uh, because, well, I want to get to what Ezra and Nehemiah is all about. You see, there were three waves of it you know, exiles, the taking them out of uh, Israel into Babylon. By the way, Babylon is modern-day Iraq. You guys are cool with that? It's modern-day Iraq, so it's a long way away. It's about 900 miles. Okay? So, why am I telling you three waves? Because what we're studying in Ezra and Nehemiah are three waves back into the land. That's what the book is all about. You get it? Three waves of exiles out of the land. That's in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. But now we're going to study the return to the land, first wave. You want to write this down? Around somewhere between 538 and 536 B.C., there's a first wave of Jews that come back into their land or in and around Jerusalem, and that's under Zerubbabel. That's chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra. Chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra doesn't have anything to do with Ezra. <laughs> he doesn't come till chapter 7. But Ezra was the one we, most people think compiled all of these letters and everything, and thus it was named Ezra and Nehemiah. By the way, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah was one book. Okay. Second wave of returning, returnees. In 458 or 457 B.C., under Ezra, they came back into the land. That's chapters 7 through 10 of Ezra. Okay? And then guess what, folks? The third wave back into the land is around 445 or 444 B.C. That's under Nehemiah. Okay? You're going to need to know that for tonight. You're going to need to know that. First wave, 538 B.C., under Zerubbabel. We talked about him. That's chapters 1 through 6. We hope to complete that tonight. If not, I owe Kara some Al's Cone Zone. Second wave, we'll see next week under Ezra, chapters 7 through 10. And the third wave is the next book we're going to study under Nehemiah. That's in 458, second wave, B.C., or 7, 445, or 444, third wave. So here's how you can think of Ezra and Nehemiah. We know that there were these exiles, three waves, 
And what we're studying now is coming out of the land of the enemy, coming back into the land of promise. That's what we're studying. So what we said at the close of last uh, teaching, last Wednesday was, for those who've never known the Lord, never surrendered their lives to the Lord, this is a book about how that happens. But it's also a book for us when we get... (laughs) You know, in that state where we're not following the Lord, even though we have salvation, we're not paying attention. It's that darkness we get into in the land of the enemy. How do we come back? That's this book. Uh, I, I got to look at it here because I can't remember it. <laughs> I don't have a photographic memory. But uh, I, I put something up uh, here today that really struck me, if I can find it. Uh, and I want to say it, it's from Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a very famous missionary to uh, China, okay? And he said something so simple here that I'm going to read to you off my phone, but so profound, and I thought to myself, man, when we get all bogged down in the details of Ezra, we might forget this, but let's not forget this. And here it is. J. Hudson Taylor said the successful Christian life is, quote, listen to this, Not a striving to have faith, but a looking off to the faithful one. To looking to the faithful one in all things. And Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of how we can ultimately now look at the faithful one because it's the story of how Jesus got here to the earth, I mean, got to Israel. You understand? This is the story, and it has these amazing principles, so I want us to learn it. Uh, It's amazing. We already saw uh, Jeremiah has a hand in this book, remember? Jeremiah uh, uh, has a hand in this book. I gave you the handouts that talk about it. Isaiah had a hand in this book because we're sure in Isaiah 44 that the name of Cyrus, the king, is going to be, was prophesied in Isaiah 44, 150 years before the guy was even born. And somebody surely showed Cyrus that he was mentioned in the one true God's scriptures, and he makes a decree, King Cyrus, that the Jews can come back into Israel. That's in 538 B.C. But that's interesting because, see, if you want to understand the Bible, you got to know the players. Because you scratch in your head, you say, Cyrus, who's he? I thought you told me Nebuchadnezzar pulled out all of those exiles in the first, all those waves, right? I'm, I'm losing you here, and I don't want to lose you. Your eyes are glazing over, and I don't want them to glaze over. Because if you understand these historical things, it'll bring the spiritual part to the surface, and you'll be blown away. And here's what's interesting is the Babylonians are the ones who took the uh, Israelites out in exile. They tore them out of there, destroying the temple and the city in uh, 586 B.C. But then a decree was sent to the king of Persia, Cyrus, and his heart was stirred by Jeremiah. That's in chapter 1. And he is the one, not a Babylonian, but a Persian is the one who's made a decree for the Jews to come back into the land. You say, well, why are you getting so excited? Because the prophecy in Isaiah is saying, hey, listen, there's this guy named Cyrus. He's a Persian. Isaiah must have been thinking, Lord, what's going on here? Persia wasn't even a a kingdom uh, that is strong yet. I mean, the Babylonians are the ones. Why are you talking about this Persian And God got it right. And he gets it right all the time in our lives by his word. He gets it right every single time. I hope that made sense to you. That's a long way of saying that God's word is faithful and you can always trust it. No matter what the circumstances look like. And here we get this Cyrus who has his heart stirred to send the Jews back. And he makes a decree in 538 BC. And we talked about that last time in chapters 1, and then in chapter 2, guess what we saw? We saw kind of a roster of the people that started to come back, and we talked about that, and the restoration 
of the temple is about to begin, and that's where we begin in chapter 3. Everybody good? I hope so. If you have questions, come see me after, and we'll talk about it. Well, listen to this. Follow along, verse 1. And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities... The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, whatever, and his brethren arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the feast of the tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings uh, in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, uh, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon uh, to the sea. Uh, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had, listen to this, from the king of Persia. The word had stirred his heart. Remember, we talked about that. It says it. The word of the Lord came to him by Jeremiah, and his heart was stirred. He was touched. He saw this prophecy and these prophecies about how he was going to be the one that, uh, that let them go back. And so he was full in on this, as you can see. And so these people gathered, and there's this priest, Joshua, right? And uh, uh, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. Remember, Zerubbabel is also named Sheshbazar, Sheshbazar. Sheshbazar is his Chaldean name, his Babylonian name, and it means joy and affliction. Zerubbabel means stranger in Babylon. Wow, two sermons we could preach all day long. Not to be content in the world, in the darkness, and also have joy in the affliction. All that time that he's up there taken captive, he's joyful. And he uh, then uh, is the one, Zerubbabel, uh, to bring uh, them back. And what did they do first? What is the first thing that these people did? Well, they build an altar. You see that? And what's interesting about that is you say, well, yeah, of course, they build an altar. Yeah, but they build an altar without a structure around it. <laughs> Are you catching this? It says they build it on its bases, which means they build it in the exact same place it was in the first temple. And if you know anything about uh, the Old Testament, which I know you do, that means it was exactly where it was supposed to be, where Abraham and Isaac story took place. Remember Abraham and Isaac? Uh, It's also the place, um, uh, you know, uh, that David purchased. David purchased this place, right? And it was a threshing floor. And uh, this was the place that uh, this uh, was set up. It was right there on uh, on its base. It was the place where it was before. It was an altar. It was an altar, so, that, of course, what, what were they doing? Well, they were doing something that was very practical. Well, you know, the, the temple's not going to get built in, you know, three days, they were thinking to themselves, or three weeks or three months. That's going to take a long time. But what can we do as we've moved out of enemy territory and come back to the Lord, as we've been given permission to come back to the Lord, and as we're coming back to the Lord, what can we do first? Just baby steps. Are you catching it? Just baby steps. And the first thing is, is to remember the sacrifices. Man, do I hardly have to expound upon that. The first thing is always the first thing, and that's this, that Jesus Christ died. He's our perfect sacrifice. He's not only our great high priest, he is the ultimate sacrifice. He died and rose again, and that's in New Testament uh, uh, thinking, but in Old Testament, they knew that they were commanded by the law of Moses, something they couldn't do in Babylon, to Give or uh, to offer the sacrifices, and as soon as they get back there, and as soon as they're allowed, and as soon as they're free to do it, the first thing they do is they set up the sacrifices, the altar, so that they could sacrifice the place. 
where there's forgiveness and mercy and God's grace and his work in the lives of his people. And we see it. It's the first thing that anyone would do when they come back to the Lord is to just be there at the place where God's Death and resurrection is most important, central in their lives. You see that? See, because as Christians, we can get off kilter. Paul said, I just, if I, I could do it again, I just pray, preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he, he preached about everything, right? He preached about everything. But he said, I, if I just could do it again, or if, you know, if I had a do-over, I would just preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. No clever language, no just... Jesus Christ, because that's where the power is. His death and resurrection. And see, what you're saying here as a New Testament believer, when you come back to that, you're recognizing, you know what you're recognizing? When you come back to that, you're recognizing this, is that your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. See, I'm convinced that's a lot of the problem that we have we hold on to our life once we've given it up as if it's our life. <laughs> and yet, the Lord tells us, hey, when you come with me, you're, you're going to put a cross on your back and you're going to die to yourself daily and you're going to live your life in service to me. It's going to be the exchange life, my life for yours, your life for mine. I'll be in you and you'll be in me, but it's my life for yours. And that's where we start, that we were bought with a price. When we're coming back to the Lord or when we're coming the first time, we should tell people this. Your life is not your own anymore. See, if you get to that place, you know what Paul says, uh, I've learned to be content in all things. Wouldn't it be great if we really learned to be content in all things? It would solve so many problems. So many problems. If we really believe that he's working out everything for the good. Sickness, death, uh, bad job placement, uh, didn't get the bonus, didn't get the right car. He's working out everything, you know, just on and on and on. He's working out everything for good, everything he works out for good. What if we came to this place where we were content with everything that the Lord does? Good, quote unquote, and bad, quote unquote. I'm putting quotes around it because nothing he does is bad. It's all good for you. Remember, we talked about this on Sunday. We don't ever have to be afraid of any of the Lord's answers to us. They're always good. Okay, so we, that's the first place they start is they make an altar. And they also kept the Feast of the Tabernacles. That's that uh, feast where they lived in booths to commemorate their exodus out. But now, interesting, isn't this interesting? They are commemorating that and they're jumping up and down and saying, Lord, you did it once. But remember now, they've had an exodus, so to speak, 900 miles from Babylon. Guess what they're saying? You did it again. You did it once. You told us to remember it. We are remembering it, and you're still doing it all this time. Hence, you know. Isn't that beautiful? And so they do it. They do it. They, they celebrate uh, that Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, I moved over something that I really want to talk about. Morning and evening sacrifices, as prescribed in the law, in the New Testament way, the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. Be a man of prayer, woman of prayer. Just be all about prayer. Your life is to be a prayer. So see, you wake up in the morning and you're pouring your heart out to God as he fills you up. And before you go to bed at night, pour out your heart to God. You know, this is just a side note. We can't do it right now. But there's going to come a day when we're going to have service in here every morning at 6.30. Every single morning. I'm convinced that the Lord's moving us towards that. So that we can all come. Not, you know, I know it's out of the way, I know, but I know not everybody can come. And we're going to have just simple worship and we're going to come in here at 6.30 and we're going to worship till 7.15 or 7.20 and go about our day. That ain't happening yet. But I'm convinced if we pour out our hearts in the mornings and we end it at night, we bookend it at night, and everything in between, oh, it's just, make, I mean, Keith Green, right? Make my life a prayer to you. I think that's so perfect. 
here morning and evenings. They also kept the Feast of the Tabernacles. They did it, you did it once, Lord. You're going to do it again. You're going to keep doing it as written. And they offered these daily burnt offerings. And afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offerings and those for the new moons and for the appointed Feast of the Lord. They did what God called them to do, in other words. Verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Isn't that so cool? You don't have to have some fancy edifice to do the ministry. You know, I'm just using the Bible college as an example. we got a little one-room schoolhouse over there. What do you mean Bible college? And somebody was just telling me today, over the last year, just being in the Bible college and, you know, coming and going through the different books, all the Bible is just coming together more and more for them. And I was like, oh my goodness, praise the Lord, that's what it's for. But if we waited until we got, you know, the, the you know, 100-acre campus with all the great, and the palm trees and everything, <laughs> we'd miss out on that. Just do what the Lord puts in front of you. Whatever you have, just use it as unto the Lord. You see it? Here, they didn't even have a foundation, but they did do what they could do, and they put together the altar, which for us signifies we were bought with a price, and that's where we start when we're coming back to the Lord. And they also, verse 7, gave money to the masons and the carpenters and uh, food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa. By the way, when you go with us to Israel, you're going to stand right there looking right down the Mediterranean where they were bringing these logs down uh, the Mediterranean to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Not only did they have the legal right by a person who's 900 miles away, you catching this? They also were given the financial means through him. Wow. Okay, now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God, by the way, this is the same month as Solomon's temple. This is the second temple. Remember, Solomon's temple was first. Now that one's destroyed and they're rebuilding. This is the second temple. Some people call this temple, after it gets redone by Herod, close to Jesus' birth, the third temple. And really, it's just a renovation. So this is the second temple. You get it? Everybody tracking with me? You're learning? Okay, good. And so uh, now in the second month of the second year, they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, uh, Jeshua, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem. Listen to what they did. They began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Now remember, you used to have to be 30 years old to work at the house of the Lord. That's in the Old Testament in Numbers. But then when David was dying in First Chronicles, he said, no, 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 we're going to lower that to 20 years old. And I just got to go off on a tangent or I'm never going to get there. Oh, man, Carol Carr, I might be getting ice cream. But um, <clears throat> see, it's so cool is to raise up young people and to get them involved in ministry. It's so weird to have these you know, people like me in the 50s and all that, so old, you know, no, I'm kidding. But, you know, just, and, and just holding on to everything in the ministry without training up anybody. Here, man, they lowered it down to 20. I'm convinced we need to raise up our young people to serve and to love the people of God. Well, Joshua, verse 9, his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the son of Hanadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, pray, or responsibly, I said responsibly, but anyway, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. And that kind of is the same thing David said when they were bringing up the ark uh, in First Chronicles 16 and Solomon when he dedicated the temple. They kind of said these same things. But remember now, they're uh, uh, celebrating the fact that God led them to do what they could do. And they began to do the altar, and then they laid the foundation of the temple. You see, the work is going about. I have to give you a pause and give you one more chronology, because I think it's important here. 
around 536 or so BC, I, I know, or five. 538 to 536 BT, you know, uh, Cyrus makes this decree, and then about 50,000 return from Babylon to Jerusalem. That's what we studied last week. Remember that? Then, in 536 or so, uh, the the dates vary by uh, commentary or, or, or expert. There we go. 536 or so, in the seventh month, of the same year, 536 or so, they build an altar and offer sacrifices. Okay? You checking with me? You tracking with me? We're just we're studying it right now. I'm giving you the date of what we're studying. Then the work on the temple begins in 535 or so BC. Some people think that number is 530 BC, but don't get yourself concerned with that. We'll talk about that at a different time. The work on the temple begins and is stopped. But listen, whether it's 535 B.C. or 530 B.C., listen to this. The work is renewed 10 years later in 520 B.C. Go over to chapter 5 just real quick. It says Haggai and Zechariah, excuse me, last bit of chapter 4. Thus the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem ceased and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius. Then look in verse 1. The work is renewed by Haggai and Zechariah. That's somewhere between 10 and 15 years split between chapter 4 and chapter 5. I'm just trying to get you oriented. So, so go with me back to verse 12. Remember, they're excited and they uh, had appointed some 20-year-olds and they're excited. They, they got the altar built and now they've laid the foundation. Isn't it exciting to see the building start to go up? Isn't that great? Well, then what they do is they go, many of the priests and Levites and head of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people couldn't discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. Are you catching what just happened like right there? The old, stale, stuffy people like me said, wow. You know what they were saying right here? See, the second temple wasn't as ornate as the first temple. And you know what these old people are saying like me? Not as good as it used to be. You're never going to match what it used to be. In other words, they were living in the past. The Bible tells us that us older people need to be great examples and mature examples for those who are younger. That's what we're to be. We're, we're to live in submission to the Lord and to raise up other people as they look at us and we're good examples for them, right? We're mature believers. And you can look at Titus and Timothy and all that. But we can't be sticks in the mud, man. Oh, we didn't do it that way. When we ripped out the pews, I thought we were going to have a revolution in here because it wasn't holy. <laughs> Wow. And yet, this, look what we're going to do tonight. We're going to be able to move these chairs and to have a youth conference in here, and it's way better. And so the leaders said, well, well gosh, we can fit more people in here, plus, right? You see where I'm going with that? And the, man, some of the older people, ooh, what are you doing? You can't do that. And I'm not criticizing the older people. I'm one of them. And yet, we can be sticks in the mud and be a hindrance to what the Lord is doing. The, the, uh, the Lord isn't always uh, into uh, old wineskins. What does he do with old wineskins? He dips them in the water so that they'll become flexible and be able to hold the new wine. Remember that? We talked about that once. So, hey, older people like me, let's be reverent to the Lord, but let's be open to the ways in which uh, uh, God is doing something new, Right? You see that? Let's not be sticks in the mud. Okay, enough of that. I can see you're glazing over again. (laughs) Chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard, now here you go, just stop right there. You, You know, when you start doing a work for the Lord anywhere, guess what happens? Adversaries arise. And in this case, what it was is when the Israelites were pulled out in the first three waves, in those three waves to Babylon, what happened was they left sick and not as healthy and not as cream of the crop-ish. 
people there. So they didn't take everybody. And what they did was they married with some other people. And so the Bible tells us in Kings and other places that they became a people who not only served the one true and living God, they served other gods as well. And God didn't want that, remember? And these people became, look at this, the word actually means enemies. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, that's the southern kingdom, they're coming back in those waves, heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel. How did they hear, by the way? Because of the joy of what God was doing in their hearts. How, do anybody, how does anybody hear? Because of the joy that's flowing out. Joy. We can all have joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Well, the captivity were building this temple, the Lord God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esharhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, they got together, they prayed, and they understood something. You know what they understood? Is that we are to be, or excuse me, Israel was to be separated from the other nations. Now, before you think something is weird about that, remember, God had to keep this country, these people, pristine in this sense that they couldn't get off track and so he kept them together why because the messiah was coming through their line and remember now the bible tells us there's no jew nor greek we're all one in christ so god is this isn't some racist thing this was a practical thing to get the messiah here and in fact later on in tonight you're going to see god was open to anyone coming to the table okay so here he comes, and these adversaries, which, you know, they go, hey, man, we, we know you're God. But the problem for them was, as Second uh, Kings 17.33, I alluded to earlier, they worshipped other gods. It wasn't just the worship of one true and living God. They did worship him some, but they worshipped others. And God says, no, it has to be exclusive. Your heart must be tied to mine, remember. No idols. And so... Zerubbabel and the leaders get together, Joshua, and they pray about it, and they say a wise thing. They say, no, in this work, we are going to be separate and by ourselves. They nipped it in the bud early. See, when you're coming to the Lord first out of the enemy's camp, you know what's terrible is to live with one foot on this side of the fence and one foot on that side of the fence. Listen, folks, I did it for 10, 15 years. I don't know. It's miserable. Because, you know, you got to be this way with some people, and you got to be this way with some people, and half the time you forget who you're with, and, you, and it's, just, it's just awful. And here, you know, God calls us, God calls us to be separate, to be a holy nation, a chosen generation, just like he calls, called them. But remember, separation, Christians, isn't isolation, we have a whole culture of Christians that never want to come out of their bubble. They just want to stay here and just be buddy buddies with their Christian friends, and yet a whole world is living out there dying. Jesus did it perfectly. He never had his witness or testimony impacted when he went places where there were sinners, and he became friends with sinners, and he spoke to sinners, and he loved them, and he shared life with them, and yet something about him, it's his grace and mercy that we need. It, didn't allow him for his testimony to be impacted. If you uh, are praying about something and you're saying to yourself, if I go there, will it impact me in a way that I'm not mature enough? Don't go there yet or, or whatever. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, so don't be separate. All right, so that's what they do. They decide that they're not going to do that. Uh, the enemy, by the way, who is the enemy? The enemy isn't Red Horns and Linda Blair-like. The enemy is an angel of light. He dresses himself up as an angel of light. And from Genesis, you know he can be very cool sounding, seductive sounding, shiny. What do you mean? I mean, seriously, did God really say that to you? And then he takes the word of God and he just twists it a little bit so you get completely off kilter. And here, see the adversaries do the same thing and what was their thing what did they want to do what did the adversaries wanted to do they wanted to mingle with the people of god and just come together 
And it would have been tempting. You know how tempting it would be to yoke up with them? God says don't yoke with unbelievers. You know how tempting it would be to yoke up with them? It would give everybody political clout. It would get the temple done quicker. There were more people and more resources. Yes, it would have been tempting, and they said no. And sometimes you got to say no, and I got to say no. And the enemy is seductive, and he says, oh, I'm going to come in and just buddy-buddy with you. I'll just rub shoulders with you, and we'll, just, it, it, we'll, we'll, we'll blur the lines of distinction between ourselves. And these people said no, and that's what we're to do. Well, he, but that didn't work, so guess what happened? He said, well, we're not going to build a house with you. We're just going to build it ourselves as King Cyrus has commanded us, verse 3. Then the people of the land, listen to this, tried to weaken the hands. That's what that word discourage means. Tried to weaken the hands of the people. So if God, if the enemy of your soul, who is a roaring lion and he's looking for you, and when you start a work of God or start to come back from God, you know, if you're, you're up here in Babylon, no problem. He ain't going to mess with you. You start coming back and being obedient to the Lord and started doing work for the Lord. You're a target. The Bible says in Ephesians 6 that he's going to send fiery darts, but in response, we're to put on our armor. And one of the things that he's going to do is he's going to try to blur the distinction between him and you. The second thing he's going to do, if that doesn't work, if you say no to that, he's going to say he's going to try and discourage you. He's going to try and discourage you. Really? You've been praying for a wife for 15 years. Do you really think that the Lord loves you? You've been praying for a husband for 15 years. Do you really think the Lord loves you? You talk about discouraging, and yet the Lord does love you, and he has what's perfect for you. And the, You get it? Or, or you didn't get that bonus, and the, and the enemy comes into your ear and says, you're not good enough, man. That guy got it. That girl got it. You're not good enough. You, all the lies that can happen, he's going to try and discourage you. Why? Listen, look at this. They even hired counselors to discourage them. That's what it says there, to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now look, you need to know this. Even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Who was after Cyrus as king of Persia? Tell me. Darius. It's important. Okay, now look. Track with me here. Verse 4 all the way to verse 24. It's examples of things that happened in the future. This isn't in chronological order. Are you catching what I'm saying? These are examples of how the adversaries tried to discourage people in the future. How do I know it? Look down in verse 12. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem, listen to this, and are building the rebellious and evil not temple, city. When's that? In Nehemiah's time. And are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. That's future. Chapter 4 through 24 is like when you're writing a paper and you're discussing something and then you say in parentheses, you say see, and then you give an example. Get what I'm saying? Ezra here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying see examples. Why do I also do I know this? Because if you didn't know this, you'd really scratch your head. Remember, these things are happening during the time of Cyrus and uh, Darius. And now, look at this. In the reign of Assuarius, in the beginning of his reign, that's, folks, that's a subsequent king. Some believe that's the same king in Esther. Some believe that's not the same king. But whatever, it's a subsequent king. In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Revelation 12.10 says what? He's an accuser of the brethren. When you do a work for the Lord, you're going to start getting accused of things that you're not or haven't even done. You get this? But praise the Lord. When that happens, Jesus told us, listen to this, so beautiful. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, when you get accused by him or anyone, you know the best thing to do? Not to justify yourself because you can't justify yourself. You know what the best thing to do is? Agree with your adversary quickly. Oh, you're calling me a slug? Well, you don't know the half of it. I'm like more of a slug than you even know, bro. <laughs> but, wait a minute, but, Jesus, 
who praise the Lord has taken my sin and has removed it as far as the east is from the west. And in Hebrews it tells us he doesn't remember it anymore and that means he doesn't count it against you. Here they come and they're, uh, uh, how, how the enemy discourages you is they make an accusation against uh, you or the people of God. In seven, the days of Artaxerxes, Bislam, Mithra, Tabal. Remember, this is in the future. This is just a parenthetical. How does the enemy discourage people? Well, there was this letter that was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language for you Bible students. From this verse until chapter 6, verse 18, and also chapter 7, 12 through 16, it's written originally in Aramaic, not Hebrew. Some believe it was because it was dictated to an Aramaic-speaking scribe. I just threw that in for free. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshay, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes. Again, a subsequent king. That's all you need to know. It's a C exhibit, like a good legal brief. From Rehum, the commander. Who's Rehum? He's the local official in charge of the area of Judah and Benjamin, down near Jerusalem. Okay, listen to this. And the rest of their companions, these representatives of all these different people, verse 10, and the rest of the nations whom took the great noble O-snapper, took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the reindeer beyond the river. What river are we talking about? Euphrates River. And so forth. Okay, now listen. This is a copy of the letter that they sent him. That's interesting. Ezra got copies. He was a good administrator. Okay, look, look, watch this. To King Artaxerxes, a subsequent king, just in here so you can see how the enemy discourages of the region beyond the river and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building this rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. See how the enemy is? The enemy gives you only three quarters of the truth. (laughs) Man, you, you guys need to know this. The enemy only gives you three quarters of the truth. You don't have a husband. You don't have a wife. Well, that's true. But what about the rest of the story? The rest of the story is God's perfectly good and wonderful and will do everything that's perfect for you. You'll never have to be afraid of his answers. But see, here they only give half the truth or three quarters of the truth because they never put in this letter that they were allowed to come back. They did, the, the, the Jews were doing this. They were building. And it was an evil city in some ways. The, the, the major prophets tell us that, right? Okay, and so do the minor. But anyway, now because, verse uh, uh, 14, we received fr- support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful, etc. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and walls completed, the result will be that they will have no dominion beyond the river. And the king sent back an answer. This is Artaxerxes. This is in the future, though. This is just an example of what the enemy is trying to do. And King Artaxerxes says, well, hey, to Rehum, verse 18, the letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me, and I gave the command, and search has been made, and it was found that this city has revolted against kings. Yes, it had. And rebellion and sedition have been fostered. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river. So take note here in verse 21. So the letter says, From this king, now give the command to make these men cease, that the city may not be built until the command is given by me. See, here's the point. Do you get what the point is for you? If you don't know the word of God, or you only know it halfway, when the enemy comes and he throws words at you, he's going to give you some truth in it. But it ain't completely true. And if you don't know the word of God and the character of God, for you yourself, you're going to quit And he doesn't want you to quit. He wants you to persevere. So here in 22, take heed now that you don't fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the herd of the kings? Now, when the copy of the king's letter was read before Rahim, Shimshay, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. Now, verse 24, guess what happens? That's the end of the parentheses. 
And we go back in time to the time of Darius the king, the successor to Cyrus. And Cyrus was the one who said, you can go back. I know I'm going fast, but if you work with these names in these uh, 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 years, you'll be blessed spiritually. So here they go back, and that's the work of the house of, the God, which, of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius the king of Persia, Darius the successor to Cyrus. This is from... And, and, and now they're going to be stopped from about, some people believe it's 535 to 520. Some people believe it's only 530 to 520, whatever. For about 10 to 15 years, the work's going to cease. And do you know why the work's going to cease? Because in Haggai, can you believe it? It's like the linchpin book here. Two minor prophets, look in verse 1 of chapter 5. The prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews. And in Haggai chapter 1, verses 2 through 10, you know what Haggai says is the problem of the Jewish people there for the 10 to 15 years? You know what the problem is? They're too comfortable with their own stuff. Material stuff. They got too comfortable building their own homes back, you know, on Main Street or Oaks, you know, Sycamore Street, whatever. They got too into their stuff to finish the house of the Lord. Man, is that, is that the United States? Is that Christians in America or what? We're all about comfort. We're all about what is in it for us. And here, the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, Haggai is just a real short book, and he, his book I would, I would describe like punch right to the face. <laughs> Zechariah is a little bit different. He's more, I don't know if mystical is the right word, but he's a, he's a prophet who was called to encourage and mobilize God's people at this time to accomplish a task, building the temple, that they began but had lost momentum, and he encouraged them by telling them about God's care for them. He's, it's like, you know what Haggai and Zechariah is? It just came to me. Good cop, bad cop. That's what it is. Zechariah is the good cop. Haggai is the bad cop. And they're coming at it, but they're saying the same thing. And they fit right here. They were part of this story. They prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them. What got the people started again? The word of God. A return to a serious and open heart to the word of God. Not just hearing it, folks. Listen, it's not just hearing it. This was doing it. They heard the prophecy of Zagai and, or Zagai, Zachariah and Haggai, but then they got up and did the word of the Lord. Oh my. They did it so much, the prophets got up and participated. Are you catching this? So the word of the Lord. Hey, are miracles wonderful? And should we be chasing after signs? Well, I'll answer this. Yes, they're wonderful, and they still happen, and sh but should we be chasing after signs? No, Jesus railed against that. He was more concerned that people heard the word of God first, and you know, he could do all these signs. He did do all these signs, but he told people not to tell him because he wanted his preaching to get through. So here, uh, you see that. And at the time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, this is a man appointed by the king of Persia to govern the province that's in Judah. Tatanai, the governor. And their companions came to them and spoke thus to them. Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? And then they accordingly, we told them, listen, this is really beautiful if you'll catch it. It's real subtle. How do you, how do you withstand people who come against you? Do you rail back at them? No, it ends terrible. Listen, they're really transparent. Oh yeah, I'm glad you're checking us out. And you can check us out and hear, oh by the way, I'm going to give you the names of everybody who's participating in the work. They didn't hide anything. It's a call for us to live transparently. So they do. They give them uh, all the names uh, uh, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not make them cease, listen to this, till a report could go to Darius. The king, where's the king? Tell me where he is. What? Yeah, he's up in Persia, Babylon. He's up in Babylon or Persia in that area. How far away is it? 900 miles. 
How long would that report get the, need to get there and get back? A long time. And guess what they kept doing? They kept working. It was a blessing. So they couldn't make them cease because God's eye was upon them. You see, they providence and the sovereignty of God. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter, and this is the copy of the letter that Tatanai sent. Here's the letter that Tatanai sent. Tatanai is the tattletale. The governor of the region beyond the river and wherever and his companions, the Persians, who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king. He sends the to Darius, and they sent a letter to him in which was written this. Hey, Darius, all peace, let it be known to the king that we went into the providence of Judea, to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones. You know what the implication there is? They're going to build a fortress, and you're never going to be able to uproot them. They're going to come against you. That's what he's saying right here. Be careful here, Darius. These people down here are building a big, glorious thing, but don't be fooled. They could come against you and hide themselves in there. Okay. And timber is being laid in the walls, and this work goes on diligently and prospers in the hand. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned to us an answer. Is this the greatest answer? This is how you answer the resistance. You don't, you don't get sharp and the hair stand up on the back of your neck and you just hammer them. You don't do that. Here's what you do. Initially, when resistance comes against you, whether it be from the enemy or from, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities, right? And when something comes against you, especially in the work of God, don't jump up and fight people and be sharp and mean. No, do this. We are the servants of the God of heaven. Make sure early on in the resistance, people know you're Christians, we, we are the God, uh, servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we're rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago. By the way, they were anonymous. There's a blessing in being anonymous. They didn't say, hey, I'm Zerubbabel, I'm John. No, it was we're just the servants and all the people, which a great king of Israel built and completed. Verse 12, but because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath... He gave them into the hand of Nebi, king of Babylon, the Chaldeans who destroyed the temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year, the king of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree. What year did he issue a decree? This is a test. 538 B.C. He issued a decree to build this house of God. Also, the gold and silvers of the house of God, of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried to Babylon. Those King Cyrus took from the temple, and they were given to one named Sheshbazar. Zerubbabel. By the way, when you're sharing with somebody, just time out here. I know I'm going a little bit long, but listen to this. Time out here. This written letter that's going back to Darius the king from the tattletales recounts an answer from the people of God. You catching me? Recounts the answer from the people of God and what impacted them. They actually used the name of Zerubbabel that was used in Babylon, which is joy in affliction. <laughs> Something about this man, this man of God, when things didn't go his way, when he boss didn't treat him right, when the work didn't complete on time, he didn't say, oh no, we got a problem. No, he said, oh no, we got an opportunity to shine God's glory. And let's just keep focusing and remember who God is and how good he is. And in the middle of all this, we know he's working out something great and this joy is pouring out of this guy. And here they use his Babylonian name. I don't think it's an accident. He made such an impact on these tattletales. And he said to them, verse 15, take these articles, carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Shezbazbar came and laid the foundation. We've studied that already. From that time, even until now, it has been under construction. Now, therefore, it seems good to the king, let a search be made to the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure concerning the matter. Then Darius, you're shaking and aren't you itching your head? You're like, Darius? Who's Darius? Well, you know who Darius is. Darius is the King Cyrus's successor. 
Okay, we're all, work with these names, man. You'll be totally blessed. So Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives. Can you believe how the Lord works in his sovereignty? Listen to this. Listen. Where the treasures were stored in Babylon. So a decree is made. King Darius, who's a Persian, issues a decree of archives of Babylonians. Now, I know it was Cyrus, but the treasures were stored in Babylon, or Babylon, and at Akmetha is a place that's separate from the palace. This province of Media, a scroll was found. So God even was providential over the library, sovereign over the library. Are you catching this? It's like finding a needle in a haystack is what the writer's trying to tell you, and God directed them right to it. Guess who he did it for? His own people. Guess who you are? His own people. He does the right thing at the right time, and he does it all the time. You catching that? Okay, now keep going with me. I know I'm a little late, but here it is. In the first year, he found this scroll, and it says, In the first year of Cyrus, he issued a decree. This is the decree that was issued in chapter 1. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifice, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid. Its height, 60 cubits. It's with 60 cubits, with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. Also let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebi took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. That was the decree. Now, therefore, the tattletale, tatanai. Governor of the region beyond the river and Shethar, Bosnai, and your companions, the Persians, who are beyond the river. Listen to this. this. This is so beautiful. Remember, now that the work begins, the enemy attacks. He tries to blend, have you blend in. If he can't make you blend in, he's going to try and make you totally discouraged. But if you'll keep looking to the Lord, just keep looking to the Lord. If you'll, if you'll study his character revealed in his word through Jesus Christ, if you'll know the word of the Lord, if you'll know Jesus, if, if you understand his, his word and who he is, listen to this, listen to what happens. Here the king makes a decree. You people, you tattletales, you accusers, keep yourselves far from there. Get away. Let the work of the house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build the house of God on its site. You know Jesus said to the enemy, away with you, Satan, in Matthew 4.10. I already told you to agree with your adversary quickly. Thank goodness that we, our sins are remembered no more. And now, in the armor of God, we have victory over the enemy. But you have to know the word of God. Do you see it? And here the word came down, get away from them. Just stay away. Moreover, verse 8, issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews for the building this, of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond this river or the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered in whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem. Let it be given them day by day without fail. <laughs> and that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven. And look, look what he throws in at the end. These people have made such an impact on a king that's 900 miles away who's a successor to the one who decreed them back. He says, hey, will you pray for me and my family? Will you pray for me and my family? Also, verse 11, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected, and let it be hanged on it, and let this house be made a refuge heap because of this, and may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree, let it be done diligently. <laughs> you see how providential and sovereign the Lord is. He's taken the emperor of the mightiest nation of the earth 
And he's allowed all of this to take place, the building in his kingdom, and it was actually funded by him in his kingdom. You kidding me? God is providential. Well, Tatani, the tattletale, governor of the region beyond the river, Shethar Baznai, and their companions did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. By the way, in 1 Corinthians 14, it tells us that prophecy does that. It encourages, exhorts, it builds people up. How about that one? And here he says, through Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, and they built and finished it according to the commandment of God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes of Persia. And now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of the house of God. How? With joy. With joy. Listen, when a person, if you just follow it, look at the pictures it's showing us. If you're in darkness or if you've never come to the Lord, you're in the enemy camp and you come back to the Lord, do the first thing first. Focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the sacrifices, right? Lay the foundation. I forgot to say this, but lay the foundation. And what is the foundation? The foundation, the chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Uh, Just everything you are is Jesus. You don't become so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good and yet you recognize that you can do nothing for him without him he's your foundation right and then when the uh, 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 resistance come you just hang in there and you receive the word of the lord don't get discouraged because you know the character of god you recognize romans 8 you know his character you've searched the scriptures you you've tasted and seen that the lord is good you just don't read the bible you've proved him more and more you know and when you get to that place at some point the enemy leaves he just sees this person's so rooted and grounded in jesus christ i'm wasting my time here and he just leaves, and, and, and the Lord uh, takes him away. All right. The children are, and, 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 and obviously, that when you see that happening in your life, joy raises up, doesn't it? Joy. Okay, that was my point. <laughs> and they offered, verse 17, sacrifices at the dedication of this house, 100 bulls, 200 rams, etc. By the way, this is 712 animals. When Solomon did it, he offered 142,000 animals when he dedicated the first temple isn't that interesting it's because they're a smaller group but whatever it wasn't as grand and big as it was the first time and Haggai told us it wouldn't be they assigned the oh no sorry you know what Haggai said by the way I know I'm running in circles but I have a point Haggai said the second temple would be more glorious than the first. And when he said that, people were shocked because nothing was more glorious than the first. But why was the second temple more glorious than the first? Just tell me. Because it would be renovated, not destroyed, and who would walk in it? Jesus. You see it? So Haggai tells us that. But here, verse 18, they assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as is written in the book of Moses. And the descendants of the captivity, verse 19, kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean, and they slaughtered the lambs for the descendants. Verse 21, then the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. What did they do? Uh, Once the joy had entered in, they kept remembering. You're ready to close up, but that's a key point. (laughs) Keep remembering, folks. You, you, not the sin that you, the sinner that you are. Yes, you're a sinner saved by grace. You don't have to wallow in the sin anymore because Jesus forgave us. No, not that. Don't remember that. You're, you're moving on towards uh, the great prize, the upward call of God and Jesus Christ. No, what, but what do you remember? As you move in this life, you just keep memorial stones of remembrance. Man, do you remember when God did that for me? Oh, do you remember when God did that for me? He'll do it again. He'll do it again. 
And that's what they were doing with the Passover. They were being obedient and remembering what he had done. He had passed over them so that they could live and be freed. Are you catching it? All right, now I, I know, I know. Then the children of Israel ate together with, look, all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations. Anybody could come as long as they separated themselves from the filth of the nations and participated in the Passover celebration. There's the gospel. And that's why I was saying it's not some racist thing about God. It's open to everybody. Anybody, just come. Last thing, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them, the most cruel nation on earth, to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of the God of Israel. Okay, listen to this. I'm going to just say this because you've got to just hear it. The, 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 the significance of the feast of the unleavened bread at the end. Passover was how many days? Depends on what you mean by Passover. Passover itself was a one-day celebration. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was right behind it, and it was seven days long. And in the Bible, when they say Passover, oftentimes they mean all eight of those days. Here, they separated out, and here's why. Once the Passover happens, they had to, right, get their house in order in preparation because once they were leaving, right, uh, uh, there couldn't be any yeast. They couldn't eat anything with yeast. And they were going to leave quickly. And they were going to pass through the Red Sea. Remember this? And what did they do at the, when they got through the Red Sea? What did God do? He closed what? He closed the world behind them. And that's what we need to do as we come out of the enemy territory. We close the world behind it. It is no more. And what is the feast of the unleavened bread for seven days? They would go throughout their house and they would clean out all the leaven in their house, all the stuff that puffed up, the prideful, well, yeast. But it was a representation of sin. And that's what he's telling us. Here's, we got a whole culture of Christians that say, pray the prayer on the magazine and live the exact same way we were living before. And we got hip pastors with high top $3,000 shoes are telling you it's okay. And it ain't okay. See, because here's what happens. When the spirit of God comes into a heart, it results in a transformed life. So we, like our father, should begin to hate more and more evil and love righteousness. Cleaning out all the stuff in our life. I think that's also what it's saying here. They memorialize that as they move through coming back to the Lord, and so are we. Okay, I gotta stop. But I had to beat Kara here. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So, so many lessons from here, but as we move from enemy territory in to a place of uh, following the Lord. There's so many principles here that if you'll study it, the enemy is going to come against you as soon as you begin to do the Lord's work. Folks, if one thing I could say from tonight, I see so many people are discouraged right now, <laughs> including Christians. Don't be discouraged. I know nobody wants to deal with this virus, nobody me included. We don't want to deal with the virus in the sense of getting, but, but don't get discouraged. Don't do weary of doing good. There are people who are perishing right before our eyes who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let our joy in affliction be a witness to this world who post every bad thing on social media. You could just see it pouring out through there. That there's hope and love and joy and most of all forgiveness. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for tonight and thank you for this message of Ezra. Oh man, it's so good, Lord, and we haven't even met Ezra yet. <laughs> and so, Lord, I just pray that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. And uh, Lord, that I went fast, but I pray that we would all maul these things over, go back over these things and you'd have us go out and do them. In Jesus' name, amen.